Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, the last verse, 19.30 through 20.16. And today we're going to take our first of two looks at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. A parable is a, it's a compound word, para, alongside of, bale, to throw or place something alongside of. It's, it's a well-known, familiar, and generally understood story in that culture that thought-provokingly laid alongside that which is unknown or unfamiliar, something that's generally misunderstood, to make them think about it in a different and more full way. The best thing about parables is that they are memorable. Some of the uh, most memorable portions of Scripture are parables, aren't they? parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Prodigal Son, the parable of the Lost Sheep. They're not just known in Christian circles, but even non-Christians and anti-Christian people, they, they use the language of these parables because they're so striking, so memorable. Hang in your mind. But the worst thing about parables is that they're easily misunderstood. Uh, for a few of the parables, like the parable of the sower or the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus offers an explanation. But with our parable this morning, we have no such help. Another nice to have in interpreting parables is if the parable is told in another one of the Gospels. But with this one, we can't look to Mark or Luke or John. This one is found only in Matthew. So in order to understand this parable rightly, context will be key. We'll need to look for some Old Testament clues and we'll need to consider what's going on in the flow of Matthew and how he uses these same ideas elsewhere in his gospel. We'll need to look at other clues from the rest of the New Testament. And guys, that's a lot of looking. So we're going to focus this week just on the parable itself. I'm not going to do all that looking to place it in context and say exactly what is Matthew doing with this. We, there's, a, there's enough here in this story to look at to make sure that we understand what the parable presupposes as these basic truths. What was common in that culture is not quite as common to us. We won't understand it quite the same way. So then next week I'm going to labor to present and defend the explanation of this parable that captures the point Matthew was trying to make from the greater context. So with all that in mind, let's read Matthew 19:30 through 20:16. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give it to you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. 
When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first, they and and when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they had received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat all day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious or evil because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. The first two things we see in this parable is Jesus' prediction that the last will be first and the first will be last. He begins that framing it in with those, with those statements. And that this reversing of the order will take place within the context of the kingdom of heaven. In part one of our look of this parable, I'm going to be following that stated pattern. I'm not going to touch what's meant by the first two things he mentions in this first sermon. I'm not going to touch the first shall be last and the last shall be first or how that fits in the greater context of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to save them for our last sermon. But today we're going to focus on just the elements of the parable itself. The landowner, the laborers, the liberality of the landowner, the lamenting of the laborers, and the liberty of the landowner. Let's start with this landowner. A landowner went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This landowner is not your ordinary everyday guy. We find first that he is very wealthy. We see that clearly in three ways in this text. First of all, he is a landowner and a vineyard owner. The landowner, this is the, the word literally means a house lord. Oiko uh, despotes, like a, a despot, you know, despotism, a ruler. He is a house lord. He owns a huge estate consisting of a homestead plus a large vineyard. It's a vineyard that is so large that many, many men could work in it day in and day out, and all the work won't get done. The very fact that Jesus here links the concept kingdom of heaven with his house lord or the owner of an estate, it shows us that he, he calls attention immediately to the fact that God is the owner of all things. Plus, the setting of the story is in a vineyard. And that's going to recur a couple more times throughout the book of Matthew. But that, that not only is a common agricultural setting in Palestine, but it's also familiar Old Testament imagery as Israel as God's vineyard through which all the nations of the world would be blessed. So right away we understand that the landowner is going to be the good guy in the story. We're not going to have a bad opinion of this wealthy landowner and vineyard owner. Doesn't that go against everything we see today and here today? Uh, it, the property owner or the landlord or the business owner today in our Marxist impacted culture is almost always the bad guy in every story, isn't he? Almost always. 
Jesus is balancing his Matthew 19, 16-26 emphasis on the impossibility of the rich and everyone else to enter the kingdom of heaven by his own works. He's balancing it now by showing the rich guy as the godlike figure in this parable. And he, not only is he a householder or a, a house lord, and not only is he a vineyard owner, but he has the means to hire several dozen workers. You've heard of being house poor? Well, this guy ain't house poor at all. He's not house poor, he's not vineyard poor, and he certainly doesn't have any liquidity problems. He is easily able to live up to the demands of Scripture that when you hire workers, you have to pay them the very same day because the understanding was these workers might need the money, might need the means to actually provide for and feed their family. So Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15, it tells them that the, the wages shall be paid on that day before the sun sets. That's exactly what we see in this story, isn't it? He has all the means to be able to pay everything that he owes all of these workers. And he hires laborers early in the morning. Laborers, plural, in verses 1 and 2. He hires others, plural, who are standing idle in the marketplace at the third hour. And again, he goes out at the sixth and ninth hour and hire and does the same thing. So others, both of those hours. And then in the eleventh hour even, he found others standing around. A denarius is... Um, a normal day's pay for a day's work. A good wage. Good healthy wage that will provide for someone. As a side note worth noting, a Jewish drachma was the equivalent of the Daenerys. Uh, but the Daenerys is a Roman coin and the drachma is the Jewish coin. The landowner is not pictured as returning to Jewish centrality here in the kingdom. Notice that. It's worth noting, isn't it? He still uses the Roman coinage in the Lord in this story. And I think that matters, doesn't it? That the covenant renewal, and remember in the Mountain of Transfiguration story, it screams the message that there will be no eschatological feast of booths, no covenant renewal for the Jews, that destruction was coming on them very soon. I think it was screamed in that story in the Transfiguration in chapter 17. And I think we've got a whisper of it here as well. But pointing out more the wealth of this landowner, a vineyard owner, not only does he have own these things and have the means to hire several dozen workers and pay them all a full wage the same day. But looking ahead, he has the means to overpay them, doesn't he? Without stealing our later thunder, it's clear that the landowner went above and beyond what he had promised to anyone or what might have been considered just. He goes to the point of generous. He tells them in verse 4, Whatever is right, I will give it to them, give it to you. But then he paid the going rate for a full day's work to everyone. This landowner is not a miserly penny pincher. Aren't you glad that our Heavenly Father is not a miserly penny pincher? That he lavishes his grace and his mercy on us. That he's not trying to withhold any good thing from his people who depend on him. No, he's not a miserly penny pincher at all. He has the means to pay, to pay well above market for labor without feeling any financial pinch from his generosity. But not only is he wealthy, but he's also industrious. Those things don't always go together, do they? Look at, look at this active, industrious landowner go. Many rich people rest on their laurels. They lose their drive, but that's certainly not what we see here. In verse 1, we see that he went out when? Early. In the morning, he absolutely didn't have to do that. A man of his means could have slept in. He 
could have sent a servant to do what he wanted done. He could have torn down his barns and built him bigger barns and took his ease for the rest of his days, as another parable in Scripture mentions. But no, that's not what he's doing. He was up and at it early in the morning. And he went out several times throughout the day. He was out again in the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hours of the day. Well, consider what motivated him again in our third point. But for now, let's turn our attention from the landowner to the laborers. Clearly, the landowner is a wealthy, industrious, and righteous man. But we see that fact. We, 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 what do we see from the laborers? Well, none of them are seeking a job. Look at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Who's the seeker here? The seeker is the landowner, not the laborers. In order to understand just how condemning that fact is, we need to understand the employment situation for day laborers in first century Judea. The day laborer didn't even have the minimal security that a slave had in belonging to one master. The slave, he knew what work he was going to do and he knew his provisions were going to be provided for. The day laborer, he didn't know that. It was on him to go and find work to do to be able to make enough money to provide for him and his every single day. There was no social welfare program. He couldn't go and sign up for WIC. They didn't have it. Did you know that? The government cheese just wasn't really available to the people in the first century. He had nothing he could fall back on. There were no trade unions to protect workers' rights. An employer could literally do what he chose with what belonged to him. And in such a setting, no work meant no food for the family. 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. These people don't have the common drive, the natural affection to make sure that they're up and at it, looking for work, and they're just waiting to be hired. He's, he's the one taking the initiative and doing the hiring. And notice what they're doing. They're, they're, none of them are seeking a job, but they're standing around idle. Notice how redundantly repetitive this theme is in this text. Redundant and repetitive. You can't get more redundant than that statement, can you? How it, In verse 3, he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Standing would be bad enough when they should be seeking work. But Jesus adds a word to it. He adds this word idle. Idle doesn't really capture it as much as the Greek word actually hits it, okay? The word for idle here is argos. And it means standing lazy or standing useless, standing indifferent, without thought, unprofitable, unemployed, even averse to labor. Like, they're not even wanting to work. That's the idea. That's the range of meaning. And it's, it's in there somewhere. It's not a good word. It's not a good look for this person, these people who are in a state where they should be the ones trying to step out and make ends meet. And they are lazy. The word's kind of gross. And then we see more of it in verse 5. Again, he went out at the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and he found others standing around again, it says. And he says, why have you been standing here again idle all day long? The landowner straight up calls them out. Guys, it is a blessed loving thing to call out lazy people and sinful people. That's not unloving. 
Tolerance doesn't just overlook destructive habits and patterns in people's lives. That's not, what, that's not healthy. That's the opposite of love. He calls them out. Why are you unsecured, poor men, who have needs that can only be met by the sweat of your own brow? Why are you standing around lazy, useless, indifferent, without thought, unprofitable, unemployed, and averse to labor all day long, he adds? You've, been stand, you've not been doing anything all day long. What's your problem? The answer is about what you would expect from your average post-Christian, post-Protestant work ethic, limp-wristed, effeminate pansy man. You're welcome for that. You love it when I say that. Amen. They're making excuses and playing the victim. That's what, that, that's what they do. They're standing around lazy and idle. He asks this question, and rather than take responsibility, they make excuses. Look, they, they cast the blame on other people. Look at verse 7. They said to him, because no one has hired us. We're standing around idle all day because nobody gave us a job. You can hear the entitlement. You'd think it was a today millennial, wouldn't you? You really would. So you are the one in need, and instead of being proactive and looking for something productive to do, you stood around in the marketplace all day, idle, lazy, lazy useless, indifferent, without thought, unprofitable, unemployed, averse to labor... Why in the world didn't someone track you down and make sure you were working? Men, if you're not providing for your own, then you should either be working or looking for work until you find it, and then when you find it, working until it runs out, and then when it runs out, looking for work until you find it, and it's on you. Nobody owes you anything. You're a grown man. Did you know that when Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden, this representative of God, this vice region of creation, he didn't go to the unemployment office to try to find a job? Who was it on to take dominion of the earth? He had to figure it out. You're a man. Figure it out. But too many people, they're just waiting around. Not wanting to take responsibility for anything and everybody, everything's someone else's fault. We don't want to be those people, do we? It's not who we should be. That's not what the laborers are doing. And the point is to highlight the liberality of the landowner. So we see a righteous, wealthy landowner who's industrious and lazy layabout laborers. And what does the land, landowner do? I said, we, I said that we would address the landowner's motivation for his industriousness in point three. Well, here we are. It wasn't so he could make another dollar. That wasn't his motivation. It, wasn't to it was to provide the unmotivated men with work so that they would have provision. He's concerned with their need more than they are concerned with their need. He finds work for these men to do. The landowner took the initiative. And that's the point here. The extraordinary behavior of this landowner is adding extra workers after he has already recruited all that he needs in the early morning. You say, how do you know that? Well, notice in verse 1, the man went out to hire. Now he goes out and he sees men standing idle. The hiring becomes a consequence of what he finds. It isn't because he needs more workers. It's not that he couldn't calculate his labor needs in advance because he was such a bad manager of his vineyard. No. He's acting compassionately to alleviate the hardships of the unemployed. 
He didn't need extra workers and his excessive payment of payment to them speaks for itself. Commercially, this man is a fool, but compassionately, this man is a saint. We're not looking at a shrewd business owner trying to turn an extra dollar. We're looking at a compassionate man who is wanting to use his position and his wealth to help other men become better men and make sure they can take care of they, their, they, themselves and their own. And he overlooks their lack of initiative. This landowner went out again and again because he knew there were men who needed to be saved from their own feckless laziness. We can always find a reason not to help someone, not to care about someone, and why to write someone off. Do you think you could say, well, shoot, they don't care? If they don't care about their, them, themselves and their own families, then who cares about them? That was not the attitude of the landowner who represents God in this. Do we want to image God? We don't image God by calloused indifference, even to people who deserve where they are. We actually are tasked to care and to love our neighbor, our undeserving neighbor, our feckless, lazy neighbor, our, labor, our neighbor who doesn't even recognize his own need and is getting exactly what he deserves in life and is headed toward exactly what he deserves in eternity. You don't get to say, I don't care. Too many people in the Reformed circles sometimes get a calloused indifference like this and it does not image God. Many of these men who needed work were not up early like they should have been in their needy state. At least the first ones that were hired, they were up early. Some weren't, weren't there at the third hour at 9 a.m. That's the third hour of the day. Or the sixth hour, the 12 p.m. Or the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And some were first seen at the 11th hour, 5 p.m. I don't know what they were doing. Watching soap operas? I don't know. Slept in? Don't know. I guess it's possible some of them worked a job and ran out of work and had ended up back in the marketplace, perhaps. I don't know what happens. We don't know those, those, those points. But the landowner is focused more on what they needed than what they deserved. He's focused more on what they needed than he is what they deserved. Colossians 3, 12-13. For us, those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, what's He tell us to do? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What do you notice about those words? You don't have to be patient with people who are easy to get along with or they're doing the right thing. It takes no patience. That person's perfect. I don't have to be, I don't have to be patient with him. If he's imperfect, what do I have to do? I have to be patient. I don't have to be gentle with agreeable people. I don't have to work on my gentleness until somebody rises up against me. We've got being encouraged by Scripture that a Christian, those that are chosen by God, if we're going to be holy, if we're going to be set apart like our Father, we're going to image God to put on a heart of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness and patience to bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Why? Just as the Lord forgave you. Because I think many times we forget that we're not the landowner in this equation. We were the feckless, lazy ones who didn't deserve anything and we're objects of God's great mercy. I think we think ourselves more righteous than we should be. 
oh, I built this. Oh, look what a great job I've done. I'm going to tell you something about myself and about you. You've not done near as good with what you've been handed as you should have. And if you get, had to give an account for how well you've done with the advantages you've been given, you have squandered more than you have built. We've got to keep this right. Sure, there's people who aren't where you are, but they are where you have been or would have been apart from God's grace. And it's so easy to forget that. So he overlooks their lack of initiative and he pays them all the same. Why? Again, this was not about paying them what they deserved, but what they needed. Yes, if you don't work, you don't eat. But these did work. They didn't all work the same amount and not all that they should have. But there's a sign of repentance here when they're called upon. You see repentance, right? They were idle in the marketplace and he compassionately calls on them. Come on and work. Calls them to repentance. And they do get up and they do actually respond and go to work. And when he sees that sign of life, that, that response there, he responds with overly abundant grace, doesn't he? The landowner was merciful and compassionate. This is not about everyone receiving a living wage either. I've, I, heard, I read some commentaries trying to say make a, a, a political um, point from this text. Well, it's not a plug for socialism or communism or any other wicked anti-biblical economic systems. It's not. Why? Well, the government is not involved in this parable in the least. We see a landowner, and he, uncoerced, is generous to men of the community by encouraging them to work and providing them with jobs. The funny thing about the progressives is that they're extremely generous, but it's always generous with other people's money. This landowner is generous with his own money, his own means, isn't he? We should image God by being the same. But it's not about robbing from all the populace to give it to other people. That will destroy entire cultures. Theft's wrong no matter who does it. If the government steals and redistributes, it's theft just as much as you, if you steal and redistribute. But I, I, I digress. The story now takes a sort of ugly turn. The reverse sequence of payments provides for an interesting development here. Those who were hired last were paid first. The way this plays out allows the laborers who were hired first to witness the payment of those who were hired last before receiving their own payment. And it somewhat understandably leads to some lamenting laborers, doesn't it? Look at verse 9. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. We see here a seeming injustice and the complaint that flows out of it. Well, seeming injustice is obvious, isn't it? If the hiring of workers at the 11th hour, 5 p.m., was surprising, it's even more surprising the wage that's paid to them, isn't it? They get a full day's Wage, a denarius. Verse 2 now becomes a, a denarius for the day's work, becomes a denarius each here the second time that it's mentioned. The story doesn't tell us anything about the reaction of the 11th hour workers because the main point isn't about these late day workers. But can't you just imagine how ecstatic they are? 
They deserved to go hungry and their families, if they had them, would have suffered due to these men's lack of initiative. But no, this landowner greatly blessed them and restored them, made them whole. Even though they deserved not to be able to eat that day, he gave them way more than they deserved, lavished graciously upon them. Isn't it the grace of God that leads men to repentance? The goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Well, I would anticipate changes in these men's hearts. But for this one day's labor, they get more than they deserve. From verse 8, we'd, uh, we'd expect to hear about the ninth-hour workers and the sixth-hour workers and then the third-hour workers. But we're to understand that they were paid all the same amount. And the story moves immediately to the workers who had worked the whole day, the early morning workers. It's here that the contrast is the sharpest. These workers saw what these 11th hour workers got. And it was as much as they were told that they would get for their whole day's work. Naturally, they thought that there was a chance, if not a certainty, that they would get more than they had been promised. But they didn't get that. That the payment is precisely the same is emphasized each of them also received a denarius. They had worked a 12-hour day compared to a 1-hour day. 11 hours more of work for exactly the same amount of pay. Well, it's not like they're going to turn it down. They needed the money and they certainly had no legal recourse. But they feel the need to let this landowner know just what they think of him. They intend to speak the truth to power as is so cringingly stated today so often. That's what they're going to do. And here's their complaint in verse 11. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. Because of the perceived injustice, the money would have been viewed as... That, that money that would have been viewed as a blessing is now seen as an insult. Isn't it? If they hadn't been there when they saw the other people paid, would they have thought they were done wrong in any way? No, but since they saw somebody else got more than I got, like my kids do sometimes, his cookie's bigger than my cookie. When The comparison kicks in. The childish comparison kicks in, doesn't it? Let's consider both the direction and the description of the complaint. Look at the direction. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. What do we know about the landowner? He's wealthy. He's industrious even when he doesn't have to be. And his industriousness is motivated by his compassion because he wants to fill the needs of tons of undeserving people all through the city. And now they're going to level a complaint against him. That's what's going on here. Let's remember again who they're complaining against, right? This landowner. The landowner is independently wealthy, owns a large homestead, a vineyard. He, I mean, my goodness, what a good man. He certainly had the assets to retire, but instead of doing that and secluding, he uses his position to bless others. He wants to help other men work and image God and earn a living. Could he have just thrown money at them without going through all the trouble? Hey, I, you know, 
the bleeding heart liberal, that's what they do. They don't want to help men become better men. They want to throw money at the problem so they can salve their consciences. This man's better than that. He wants to make these men be the men they should be. Doesn't he? He wants to take immature men and make mature men out of them. He calls them out for their laziness. He encourages them to stop standing around and to do something productive. Not because he needs workers, but because these workers need him. Whether they know it or not, they need him. Remember, not one of these laborers, those who were there early, not those who were hired late, not one of them was out looking for work like they should have been. The righteous landowner sought them out. Guys, we have to be very careful. We are all subject to grumbling against and accusing people who are much more righteous than we are. Be careful. You grumble against people in the church. And many times the people in church that you've got a problem with, they are way closer to God and doing way better than you are. And you're finding fault because you're not getting yours. Even when our complaint sounds reasonable, many times we are actually more guilty than the person we're grumbling and complaining against. They accuse the landowner of injustice. And what's the basis of this alleged injustice? We'll see the description in verse 12. These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. Those hired at the eleventh hour are now called these last men, echoing the beginning and ending of the parable. The last shall be first and the first shall be last, right? The accusation seems valid. These last men started working after we had worked all day. One hour versus 12 hours. It wasn't only a matter of the time spent working. The grumblers also note the conditions that they had to endure. They had borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat, it says. The 11th hour workers did very little work. And they did it in the best conditions in the cool of the day. And in the minds of the people that worked all day, that's just not fair. Are they right? Well, let's turn to the landowner. See how he answers it, what he points us to. Look at the liberty of the landowner beginning in verse 13. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. But here is an adversative. It means he disagrees. You're, you're complaining against me? And he disagrees. He doesn't say, oh, I, I see where you're coming from. He doesn't say that. Guys, many times you think you're being humble when you say, I see where you're coming from when people say outlandish, stupid things. Guys, if they say something outlandish and stupid, don't agree with it. Landowner doesn't hear, does he? He doesn't see where you're coming from because you're seeing this wrongly. You're flat out R-O-N-G-E, aren't you? He doesn't say, you make a valid point. He doesn't say, I'm glad you said this because diversity is our strength and we need divergent viewpoints so we can actually come to a better truth. He doesn't say that. But he does address them as friend. Mm. He does do that. Not slave. Not subordinate. Not peon. Not stupid. He doesn't address them in any demeaning way at all. Even though this is the lazy person who wasn't looking for work and doesn't have a leg to stand on in his argument, 
Even though he's far less righteous than the landowner is, although he's not nearly as compassionate as the landowner is, although he's only concerned about himself and what he's getting where the landowner's concerned about everybody and trying to serve and provide for everybody in the community, even though he's like, do you know what, who you're talking to? You know how selfish you are? He doesn't even call him out for any of that. And he calls him friend. The word marks having something in common with a person. He addresses him as an equal, not as a subordinate, which is beautiful. But he absolutely doesn't apologize. Speak respectfully to the person accusing you of wrongdoing, but never apologize if you don't see where you're wrong. If you don't really believe you're wrong, don't apologize. You're lying. You don't apologize to keep the peace. You apologize as a means of repentance when you know you're in sin. And you need to be shown from Scripture. And once you see in Scripture that you are in sin, you should repent. But when you're told you're in sin and you don't agree, don't pretend you do. Hash it out. By addressing him as friend, he's extending an invitation to come to a common perception of the situation being addressed. The landowner's commitment to doing what is right Mentioned all the way back in verse 4. What is right I will give to you is still on display now. He wants what is right. So he invites him. Let's reason through this together. Friend. And his own righteousness is defended. He says, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? This righteous word, it's the... Uh, typical word used for righteous. The same root as I'm doing you in this. I'm doing you no wrong. It's a deco. That deke. Is, the, is that root word for righteousness? I'm not doing you anything other than righteously. I'm completely upright in how I'm dealing with you. I, I've given you everything that I owe you, and I've actually been very gracious in being the one that found you and pulled you out of your listlessness and your fecklessness to employ you in the first place. I've done you no wrong. Most every reader will instinctively sympathize with the laborers in verses 11 and 12, because it doesn't seem fair. But when we think of fair, we think, we're actually thinking of equal, and that's not what fair means. No one's been cheated. Their agreement has been perfectly fulfilled. Who is being unrighteous? The landowner didn't owe them a job, provided them with an opportunity to work, and then think about verse 11, when they received it. Think about this together. They received something, and they grumbled. It's like you get a kid a Christmas present and the first thing out of their mouth is, this isn't what I wanted. Guys, when you receive something, be grateful. I'm hitting the kids today. Your, your parents put food down in front of you. No, I, I didn't want pancakes. I wanted bacon and eggs or vice versa because whatever you made, it was the wrong thing. You received something and then you grumbled. You received a grace and then you grumbled. What's grumbling? Well, we have to define it, or people will define it away. I'm not a grumbler. Well, the word grumbler, it's a muttering, a complaint, a negative response to something unpleasant, to something inconvenient or disappointing, and then you ver- verbalize it. It's this self-centered notion that you deserve better. I remind myself, people ask me, how are you doing? I like to remind myself. I, I don't always take it to heart, but I try to take it to heart. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. Log that in your head. 
If you remember, I'm doing better than I deserve, you won't be the grumbling person nobody wants to be around. You ever around somebody that all they want to do is tell you how bad everything is and how everybody's wronged them? You want to run away, but you feel like you'll be rude if you do. So you just kind of sit there awkwardly until they shut up and then don't want to go around them anymore? Don't be the grumbler. Be the grateful person. person overflowing in gratitude. Rather than get angry and lash out, he calls him friend and continues teaching. And now he teaches about property rights. Verse 14. Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. You take what is yours and go. That's yours now. You, that's what I've given you. It's yours. But I actually have stuff that's mine. And it's okay with me to do with my stuff whatever I want to. I'm not getting enough of, of the inheritance. Hey guys, if, if, you, if somebody dies and you're like, oh no, I dread when they die because there's going to be such a fight in the family, here's the posture of a Christian. I get what I get and I don't pitch a fit. I don't care. I lost a loved one. I'm not caring about the stuff that I get after they die. What, what is that? Jesus rebukes somebody for that in the Gospels as well, doesn't he? No, that's not what we do. It's not who we are. Whatever they leave to whoever they want to leave it to, it's theirs and they can do what they want to. We can give to who we want to. We can lavish on some and less on others. Your heart can be turned more toward one person than another person. We do it in the churches too, don't we? That you're not getting... So-and-so gives way more attention to so-and-so than they do to me. Or they might like them more than they like you. Is there anything wrong with that? Are there not people you like more than you like other people? And anything they do do for you, it's never enough when those people, with those types of people that have the hearts that way. They do something and it's not enough. It's an empty hole. And then they realize, man, I just never can please that person. And it makes them withdraw all the more, which just makes the cycle go all the more. Be a gracious person who receives every good thing as a good thing with gratitude instead of finding fault with what you do get and it not being enough. I've had people before get mad at me because they had a prayer request and then I didn't ask them about the prayer request after that I had prayed for it. And then they come back to me and let me know, you never asked me about that prayer request. But you know I've got a lot going on and sometimes I don't remember to ask you about the prayer request. I just let go and let God. I prayed about it, now it's over, and hey, I guess God's got this. And sometimes it might come to my mind and I might ask you about it. Do you think you've asked somebody about every prayer request anybody's ever asked you to pray for? We weigh with unequal balances, don't we? We can't be that person. It's not who we should be. Take what is yours and go. It seems odd to see this take what is yours and go at this point because the conversation goes on. But if you put it at the end, it would gain more of a negative thrust. It would be, what I do with others is no business of yours and you go on and I'm never going to talk to you again. But a permanent breach isn't what's going on here. It's an invitation to a happy outcome. Friend, just take your stuff and go do what you want with your stuff. We don't have a fault here. That's the spirit of what's going on. He's not even breaking fellowship because he's offended because he's being gracious and he's not being recognized for how gracious he is. He's still being gracious even though he's now being attacked for not being gracious enough in somebody's eyes. You're, as a Christian, you're going to be falsely accused when you are righteous and you are going to count it all joy, my brethren. 
Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Not only blessed, but once they do that, you continue loving them anyway. That's what you get to do. And what a joy. You say, I get to do that? Yeah, you get to be like your Heavenly Father and you get to do that. And there's blessing in heaven for doing it. What a joy to get to be like my Father. But I wish to give this last man the same as you, verse 14. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? If people are going to stick by the requirements of the law, he's already done so. He hadn't skimped in paying any of those with, him, with whom he had an agreement for a denarius. It couldn't be denied that he had acted within the law. The frame of reference for thinking about the situation is transformed. Who deserved more pay? The one who worked longer and harder or in worse conditions? Well, what is deserved isn't the point here. What, what pay, if any pay, was all grace and it was all really unmerited in an ultimate sense? You didn't even look for this job and I sought you out. What if the employer didn't even need the? I mean, this employer didn't even need the help, but was actually helping you. I remember my dad hired me to work for him when I was 11 years old for three dollars an hour, and I told him that I wanted at least 4.25 because that was minimum wage. I was going to negotiate. He told me, "Well, you've got a choice. You can work for three dollars an hour, or you can work for free. I don't mind whichever one you want." Dad was teaching me to work. He didn't need my labor. I was probably more of a detriment than I was a help. It wasn't that he needed my labor. It's that he wanted me to be a man, the man I should be. That's exactly what's going on with this landowner here. He's trying to build a man. He's not worried about the pay. A denarius will take care of you. It's enough. It's actually gracious. And you're going to argue with him. The landowner is pointing to the fact that he is the gracious one in the situation. He is wanting to help all the people he employs. He didn't need any of them. Whatever labor was done was a bonus. He was teaching them to work and taking care of their needs. The emphasis is on the state of idleness in which the landowner initially found the workers at all the different points. You all were just idle. You weren't the men you should be. I'm making men and providing for all your needs. The landowner was already being significantly other-centered in his hiring. They needed work. And he continues to be so in his payment. They needed pay that would have gone to a full day's employment. Even though they had squandered much of the day, he wanted to make sure their needs were cared for because he was such a gracious, compassionate man. And now, once again, he calls them out for their sin. They accuse him of sin, but they are actually the ones in the, in the wrong. Look at the last statement, a statement where he calls them out for their resentment. Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? This word, I, translation's terrible here because envious is evil. That's, that's what the word means. Is your eye evil because I'm generous? It's the exact same construct we see in Matthew 6, 22-23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if, if your eye is clear... Your whole body's full of light. If you, if you can see things clearly, you'll see things rightly and you'll be a righteous person. But if your eye is bad, if there's something wrong with how you view things, then your whole body will be full of darkness because you're aiming for the wrong things. Your, your double vision will mess you up. You're not seeing things clearly, so you'll make wrong decisions because you're not seeing things rightly. If then that light is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
It's not an envious eye. It's a duplicitous eye. It's a messed up eye. It's an eye that can't see things rightly. I, you, back to the point. If you hadn't seen me pay these other people more than they deserve, you wouldn't have a quarrel with me. Because, but now, since you know I was gracious to somebody else, you now can't see things clearly and you think I owe you more than what we agreed on. My generosity changed the situation in no way towards you, but in your heart and your mind it has. That's called the effects of the fall. That's called sin. We've got evil eyes because of our sin nature. We respond wrong to righteous things and then paint ourselves as the victims. Guys, we all can do that. We all can do it. We've got to be very careful. The point made here is that because of our sin, another person's righteousness can make us see things wrongly. When we are self-centered egomaniacs who never think we're getting our due, even though we are blessed far beyond what we deserve. In truth, the resentment was totally unreasonable. If the, same, if the frame of reference is equal work for equal pay or anti-discrimination, then the resentment is justified. But guys, those slogans, they're popular in our culture today. They're unbiblical slogans. The person who has the assets can do with their assets what they want because it's theirs. There's your biblical standard. That's a just society. But the landowner has been pressing the claims of a different framework. He's been doing good. Should the one who has been doing good be met with evil and resentment, does he not... when he's been considering actually the well-being of all the other workers, he's challenging them to see with fresh eyes his actions. Reminds me of the prodigal son, one we mentioned earlier, right? Same kind of story. The prodigal squandered everything. The father's concerned. He gives him his inheritance early and he goes out and blows it on sumptuous living. It's all gone. It's still his son. He still cares. And the son comes back home and he's so happy to see him and he runs to him and he falls down and hugs him and kisses him and puts a robe on him and has a party and kills the fatted calf. And what does the older brother who didn't leave and squander everything do? Well, he is resentful. He's like, I've been here the whole time. You never killed no fatted calf for me. You didn't do right. Why is he getting this when I'm not? His eye became evil because the father still loved the other son who didn't deserve mercy, but he's merciful and compassionate toward the son who's been restored. He says, all that I have is yours. I'm not doing you any wrong because I'm actually loving him. And you should be glad that your brother's back. You should be happy that somebody is getting grace. If we're not happy that other people are getting grace, we must not like grace and we must not think we need any ourselves. Right? Recognize the goodness of the outcome of the of this landowner or this father when he's blessing someone else we rejoice in the fact that someone else is being blessed that's a righteous posture I want to warn us of becoming we want to be dominion taking people who go out and build and create create jobs and, and help the world around us we want to be that kind of people don't we 
But the danger is to, well, I've done this and I've built this and look what I've done and then look down your noses at other people who haven't done well or aren't where you are yet. And you think, well, they deserve where they're at and you become a calloused, indifferent person. We've got to keep these truths in balance. Yes, I want to go out and image God well, but I've still not imaged Him well enough and I'm an object of grace. And these other people who aren't where they should be, I've got to rescue the perishing and love them where they are. Disciple people from where they are. Not from where you'd have them to be. If they were already where you'd have them to be, you wouldn't need to disciple them, would you? You see them in their pitiable state and you love them there. It was Jesus hanging on the cross because of our sins who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Next week we're going to consider who it is in the kingdom of God who worked in the vineyard longer but got less pay and how they were provoked to jealousy and how this played itself out in the early days of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to put that in the context of the Old Testament, context of Matthew and show it in the book of Acts and in the epistles of what was going on here, of the exact situation that Jesus was addressing by putting this parable where he does in Matthew. But for now, can we not just revel in the good news that we have a loving, compassionate Father who lavishes gifts on us, that he's forgiven us of much, therefore we should forgive others of much, that we should learn from this and emulate him and be like him, but we can never be like him enough to merit our salvation. Why can we be saved? Because he met us where we were. And He gave His Son as a sacrifice for our sins to pay where we came short. We have no grievance. If anybody else gets more than us, we have no grievance at all because what do we deserve? When I say, they say, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. Well, I don't mean I deserve more money or I mean I deserve less money or a less lot in life. I mean I know what I deserve. I deserve death and hell. Guys, you know what? Christians know you deserve death and hell. Every sin deserves the anger and punishment of God, but God intervened and sought you out. I love those, I love those uh, songs. We got it in much of our music. But, and all I have is Christ. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. How sweet and awful is this place. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands made a wretched choice and would rather starve but come? Why? Because it was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we would still have refused to taste and perished in our sins. He came and got us when we were standing idle in the marketplace. And come thou found of every blessing. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He is the great seeker. Rejoice in that. And that brings us this morning to the table.